microcosm of the church. In other words, a representation in visible, tangible form of what the church with a capital C is in God's economy. The church, of course, is the bride of Christ. Christ is the head of the church. The church is the bride. And all over the world, those who belong to Christ are members of that church. We try not to think too much about the divisions of denominations and all of that. But if we love God and have received him into our lives, we then become members of this great congregation. And the thing which is supposed to set us apart from all others, the thing by which Jesus said a non-Christian will recognize that we are Christians, is love. That is supposed to be demonstrated daily in the Christian home and as often as possible in the Christian church. We don't necessarily come to church seven days a week. But that's what I mean when I say that family life is meant to be a microcosm because the law in the home and in the church is love. It's not legality. It's not appropriate to introduce political terms into the home and the church. That's one of the reasons why I stand against the feminist notion that men and women are interchangeable because God clearly made us different physically. Those differences are very obvious and the physical body represents some very important truths. A male body is obviously made for initiation and for strength, for the husband to be able to provide for his wife and to do the hard work and a wife, a woman, is given a physical body which represents receiving, nurturing, carrying. And we are obviously created with a different kind of musculature and many other differences. But those things are visible signs of an invisible reality. We are meant to be complementary. I don't mean that we complement each other all the time, telling each other how beautiful and how wonderful we are, but complementary, C-O-M-P-L-E, meaning that we are made to work together and in harmony, but there is that glorious difference and inequality. Each of us created with a different design because God has given us a different function. So the law in the home is love. Now it begins, I believe, with the headship of the father. And I want to tell you something about the wonderful father that blessed our lives. My father realized that he held a sacred office, that God had assigned him to be the priest in the home, the one who would have to answer to God for the nurturing and the raising of those children. You know, the Bible says, fathers, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It doesn't say, Father, fathers, let your kids grow up. I mean, the kids will grow up, whether you do anything about it or not, pretty much. But God is going to hold the fathers responsible for the spiritual training of their children. And my father simply assumed that if his wife was responsible for giving the children three physical meals per day. It was his responsibility to see that the children were fed spiritually every day. This began 
and his understanding of his position in a Christian home began with his understanding of God's order for husband and wife. And I have to mention these things very briefly. We could spend many hours just on this one point. But the Bible says that the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. So here we see this tremendous eternal truth of Christ's headship over the church represented within a marriage in which the husband answers to God for his care of his wife. When Adam received Eve as a gift from God, the Bible tells us that Adam named her. And I'm told by Old Testament scholars that the authority to name was the acceptance of responsibility. When Adam named the animals, and wasn't that a feat? Can you imagine thinking up all those names from the aardvark and the bear and the cat and the dog and the elephant and the fox? Of course, it wasn't in English. Who knows what language it was? All the way down to the zebra. I think, what an imagination Adam must have had in order to do that. But then God wanted him to name this electrifyingly beautiful creature that God brought to him as a gift, this woman who was very much like him, much more like him than he was like a giraffe, but amazingly different. And Adam received the gift and named the woman, named her woman. And this was his acceptance of responsibility to provide for her, to care for her, to cherish her to husband her. Maybe we have some men here in the audience who are in animal husbandry. You know that that means the care of animals, providing for them, taking care of them, and that is exactly what a husband is supposed to do for his wife. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 to 9, we have a definitive passage of God's command to men, I think specifically, although it doesn't limit it to fathers, but it says this, Deuteronomy 6, 1 to 9, These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe. This is Moses speaking. In the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. Now those are very clear, unequivocal commands that God is giving to parents. It is your responsibility to 
teach your children these truths. Now, how do you do it? He's not suggesting that you start Bible studies or that you write books or that you become a preacher. He's saying talk about them when you walk, when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. And I want to tell you about my father who certainly did those things. My father, like most men, had a five-day-a-week job. But Saturdays, we could count on him being home. And I think virtually every Saturday afternoon, with very few exceptions, my father did something with us children. Now, I grew up in the Great Depression a thousand years ago, before anybody in this room probably was even thought of. So we didn't have any money. It wasn't so we could pay money to go and be entertained anywhere. My parents never thought of taking us to movies because they believed that movies were not good for children or anybody else, and so we didn't go to the movies. We didn't go to anything that cost money most of the time. Now, once in a while, my father would take us into Philadelphia. It cost 10 cents to ride on the trolley and 25 cents admission to the great art museum and another museum called the Franklin Institute, which was fascinating, kind of a science museum. Those were very, very special treats. Most of the time, my father took us for walks. And we walked in the wintertime, in the snow, and in the summertime. And he would teach us to observe God's creation. And I thank God for having been taught to observe things. He taught us about birds. My father had learned when he was 16 years old the names of very many birds. He went out in the woods by himself. This was his own hobby that he thought up, and back in those days nobody had ever thought of the word bird watcher. But he became an avid bird watcher and also learned to imitate birds. He could imitate 60 different species of birds and give 60 different bird calls to absolute perfection. I still have a tape of my father's bird calls he belonged to an ornithological club, just a bunch of amateurs who were bird watchers, and they used to occasionally go out on Saturday mornings for bird hikes, bird walks, he called them. And my father used to pull one over on these experts sometimes by going off into the woods and imitating a bird that did not belong in that area <laughs> or a bird that didn't belong there at that season. And, oh, they would get all excited and they would go plunging through the thickets with the binoculars trying to find this bird and it would turn out to be my father. I just tell you that because that tells you how accurate he was. He couldn't have fooled them if they hadn't, if he hadn't been perfect because they knew what the bird call was supposed to sound like. But that was just one of the things he taught us and he taught us that when we walked through the woods we were to walk quietly, keep our mouths shut and our hands behind our backs because he said if, if there's any movement of your hand it can scare the birds or scare any little animals that we might get to see. We had the wonderful blessing and privilege of traveling every summer up to the friend, to the White Mountains of New Hampshire, where we had a lodge that had been built by my great-great-uncle. That lodge is still in the family. It was built in 1889. And we climbed mountains. And as we would climb the mountain, my father would point out the different birds, the different ways in which the trees were of one kind out at the bottom and as we climbed higher and higher there would be different trees and then we would come out above the tree line onto these wonderful rocks from which we could see 360 degrees and he taught us 
to appreciate the smell of the balsam and the pine and the sound of the running brooks and we would be able to drink straight out of those little crystal clear mountain streams and then we would stand on top of those mountains and look out over the vast expanse of the green mountains and the rest of the white mountains the highest mountain in the east is mount washington we climbed that many times and so to him i owe this great debt of teaching us to appreciate god's creation when i think of the forms of recreation that most children indulge in today it has nothing to do with god's creation usually they pay money to go into an amusement park or they go into a movie theater or they go indoors to do uh, something like in a museum and so i urge you to think about all the beauty of this wonderful state of california and the marvelous resources that don't cost anything teach your children to appreciate those things as a writer i realize that i cannot write unless i make observations and my father only had one eye he had lost his left eye as a result of disobedience when he was a child you can imagine how many times we heard that story <laughs> his father had forbidden him to have firecrackers for 4th of July because he said they're too dangerous and so my father just determined when he was 13 years old that he was going to try out some firecrackers well he couldn't find any firecrackers he didn't have any money to buy any but he found some dynamite caps and so he and a buddy of his got up at five o'clock in the morning and went to a nearby farm and asked the farmer to help them set off these dynamite caps put them in a pile on the ground the farmer lit the fuse and they all ran for their lives and stood far away and nothing happened and they waited and they waited and finally they closed in and the farmer kicked the pile and the dynamite exploded and a piece of copper went into my father's eye and he lost it he could see with one eye what it would take us 10 minutes to see with two eyes with him pointing to things do you see that bird do you see that tree can you tell me the name of this flower can you remember what we saw when we were on top of mount washington and he would just quiz us on these things when we had a guest in the home he would sometimes ask us after the guest had left what color were his eyes did you notice his hands did you notice what socks he was wearing so we were quizzed and trained now that is the kind of a father that i had he took responsibility for his children and he was always pointing out spiritual lessons from these things i remember him quoting a little poem when he would talk about the birds said the robin to the sparrow i should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so said the sparrow to the robin friend i think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me the greatest form of teaching is example my father set the example of a godly man now i want to make it as clear as i possibly can that my father was not a person to talk a whole lot about spiritual things he spoke with us children he would point things out briefly simply but one thing that never happened in our in our home was what is nowadays very popular thing and it's called sharing 
and everybody gets together to share their inmost feelings and tell people how bad they feel about this or that and pour it all out and let it all hang out. That would never have crossed my father's mind that we needed to share in that way. He was a very he was a very tall man. He was about six feet three and weighed about 160, so sort of a bean pole. And he was sure that nobody would ever marry him because he only had this one eye. But he married a very beautiful woman who was a whole lot shorter than he was. And he was a very shy, quiet, truly humble man. My brother Tom and I were talking about him just the other day. We talk about our parents a lot when we get together. And Tom said, he is still my icon of what a godly man is supposed to be. Far and above anybody else that I've ever met, I look to my father for a model. That's what Tom said. So my father taught us far more by what he was than by anything he ever said. But he said enough for us to understand the source of his authority. Now the third thing, if any of you are taking notes by any chance, the first thing was the, we, a family is a microcosm of the church. The second is the headship of the father. And that is an assigned office. I did skip over a very important topic which comes under that heading, that the wife is to submit to her husband not because he's smarter than she is, or more spiritual, or physically stronger, or better looking, or always right. Now, the husband might be all of those things, except the last. <laughs> I don't think there's any husband in the world that could claim to be always right. But I am to submit to my husband, Lars Grin, because he holds an office. It is not one that he chose. It is not one that I conferred upon him. It is not one that he earned. It is not one that he achieved. It is an assignment by Almighty God. The husband is the head of the wife. It doesn't say ought to try to be. It doesn't say the wife ought to allow her husband to be the head. It doesn't say he's supposed to be the head if, if he feels good about it. It's very clear. And I'm giving you what this book says, not Elizabeth Elliot opinions. If I were giving you how I feel about it, it would be a very different story. <laughs> because you're not looking at a woman who is submissive. I would like to see the hands of the women in this audience this evening who were born with a gentle and quiet spirit. <laughs> a submissive spirit. Now take note, gentlemen. There has not been one hand that has gone up here that I've seen tonight. And I have never seen one hand go up in an audience with this question. Well, you know what happened? It happened back in the Garden of Eden. Eve decided to be the initiator. And she took the responsibility away from Adam. And Adam wimped out. And instead of digging in his heels when she said, let's have some of this fruit because God's trying to cheat us of the best thing in the garden, he just said, well, that's what the little lady wants and that's what we're going to do. And he went along with her instead of saying, wait a minute, no way are we going to disobey what God said because God knows better than we do. They both 
arrogated to themselves this independence. You could say they made a declaration of independence of God. And we are restored into fellowship with God when we declare our dependence upon him. But I don't think men, ever since Adam's example, find it easy to be the head in the sense that Christ means it when he says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. Because that means sacrifice. It says the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church, which means a laid down life. Bossism is one thing. Tyranny is one thing. Throwing your weight around is another. But headship, as it is described in Ephesians 5, is a very different thing. And men really aren't looking for that kind. Nobody is looking for sacrifice. But that's what it takes. So, probably if I were to ask the question of you men, how many of you would find it easy to take that position of headship, we might not see too many hands. But I'm not going to press that point. I'm a woman. I'm not supposed to be preaching. I have to be careful here. All I'm doing is trying to outline what the order is supposed to be in a Christian home. And you know, you men, that God is going to hold you responsible. So my father and mother had no questions whatsoever as to who was the final authority. At whose desk does the buck stop? At the husband's. And to me, that's a great relief. Some of you know that Lars Grin is my third husband. Number one was killed by a tribe of Indians in South America when he was a missionary. Number two died of cancer only four and a half years after we were married. And God has given me the lessons that it has required in order to submit to three very different men. My father and mother recognized that God had ordained this order and so I don't think there was ever any discussion. I don't remember any discussion whatsoever in our home because my mother was glad to surrender to her husband. But when my father was not home, I can assure you, it was not we children who were in charge. My mother was certainly in charge. But when my father was home, we knew that my father was in charge. So they were accepting the God-ordained and God-assigned positions of being mother and father and husband and wife. So the third thing now that is most important for parents to realize is that God has given them authority over their children. And they must answer to God for the way in which they have wielded that authority. I have young parents sometimes coming to me and saying, Sometimes I wonder if I really have a right to make my kids do these things or a right to punish them. And I have to remind them, but perhaps they didn't realize at all because they are new Christians, that God has assigned authority to the parents. The parents, in other words, stand in the place of God in the family for those little children. To a small child, his father and his mother is the only representation of God that he can possibly comprehend. The warmth of the father's arms, the comfort of the mother's lap, these are 
signs and symbols to him of the love of God. And so, authority is assigned. Let me read to you John 14, verses 23 and 24. Jesus is talking to his disciples just before he leaves to go back to his father. And he says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. We were given to understand when we were children that obedience was the proof of love. Obedience to our parents. My father gathered us all into the living room every morning after breakfast. And we sang a hymn, the whole family. And one of the hymns that was a favorite of ours was Trust and Obey. Two simple words which comprise just about everything that I can think of that I ever want to talk about or write about. Sometimes I'm asked, what in the world do you talk about when you travel around and speak and when you write all those books and when you do the radio program? That's my answer. Trust and obey. And those two things go together. There is no more obvious proof of the reality of our faith than obedience. And there is no other proof of the reality of our love than obedience. Jesus says it again and again. If you love me, do what I say. Don't just sing about it. It's easy to sing about how much we love Jesus. But then there's always that still small voice saying, don't just tell me, show me. And how do we show him? By trust and obedience. And after we had sung a hymn and we sang one hymn per day, then my father read the Bible. And I want to say for you men who may be a little bit hesitant about establishing family prayers or family devotions, whatever you want to call them, that it doesn't have to be a sermon. You don't have to be a theologian. I think a lot of fathers have dropped out of doing anything about the spiritual training of their children because they think their wives are better at it. And it's, it may be perfectly true that their wives are more capable in spiritual things. Maybe they've been Christian longer. Maybe they've, they're better at expressing themselves. But that doesn't let you off the hook, you know, because God did not leave it up to us to vote on who was going to do what in the house. So I want to tell you that my father didn't make a sermon out of those Bible readings. He hardly ever asked a question. Once in a while he did just to see if there was anybody of his six children paying any attention. And he didn't expatiate on the passage or preach any kind of a sermon. It was just a brief passage from the Bible. And I want to urge you to read the Bible to your children. I urge you to use one translation in your home. Probably the best idea is to use whatever translation is used in your church. So that when your children hear the Bible read, whether it's in church or at home, it will be the same words. And that's the way to memorize. Now, when I grew up, there were no other Bible translations that were known, there were a few that were hardly known at all, but the Bible translation that everybody had was the King James Version. So we heard the King James Version read every Sunday in church, every morning at home, and every evening at home, and believe it or not, every single day in school. 
in public school, it was the law that the Bible had to be read. Can you imagine that? Back in my day, that's the way it was. So we heard the Bible read at least three times a day. My father read the Bible. And then after he'd read the Bible, we all got down on our knees and my father prayed very simply. Again, I want to encourage you men. You can pray for your children and you can pray with your children. You don't have to be a 50-year-old Christian. You can be a two-week-old Christian who has just come to know God and you can change the whole tone of your home by praying with your children. And my father not only prayed with us, but he prayed for us. Each of us was mentioned by name in those prayers. And then he ended his prayer with these words, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray. And then we would all chime in with the Lord's Prayer. Otherwise known, if there's anyone here who's got a Catholic background, you would probably call it the Our Father, but it's the same prayer. It's the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. And so we prayed that together, and then that was the end. We went off to school. My father went to the commuter train to go to Philadelphia. And I go into these details in order to encourage you to see how simple it was and how easy it is. But we children grew up having memorized hundreds of hymns by heart. Not by any special effort, but just because we sang them over and over and over again. And my mother told me that when her sixth child came along, my youngest brother Jim, I was number two of six, she said she read the 23rd Psalm to that little boy when he was about two years old every day for one week. All she did was read it to him once a day for one week. And he had it memorized. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Now that is an illustration of the miraculous memorization power that little children have. And you know how easily they pick up those commercials on TV. They don't sit there and try to memorize them. They know them. And you can hear them parroting things that you've said. And mothers write to me and tell me that their tiny little kids listen to my radio program. And one mother told me she heard her little boy was in the next room playing by himself, saying, you are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot. <laughs> Which is the opener that I use every day on my radio program. And he was just mumbling and muttering away. And, of course, the words don't mean a thing to your children. Another word of encouragement I want to give to you, husband, you fathers and mothers. Of course your children are not paying very much attention. It looks as though they're not, they're not paying any attention. And being having 16, six children in our family with a span of 16 years, of course there was almost always an infant that in my memory. Our minds were out the window. We were not paying attention to my father's reading the Bible. We certainly were not examining the words of the hymns that we were singing. And we were parroting the Lord's Prayer. But it's stuck in our minds. That's the great thing. Stuff your children's heads with things that are worth remembering. The hymns, the Bible, and the prayers. And it's easy to do when you start early with those children. And we thank God. We get together maybe once in three years, we six, with our spouses. And when we get together, what do we do? Well, besides a tremendous lot of laughter and hilarity, we sing hymns together still. And we still love to sing those hymns. And we've talked about how 
many thousands of scripture verses we learned without any effort at all because we heard them read. Teach your children to pray. You can teach a very small child to say, thank you, God. Thank you for my baby bunny. Thank you for my supper. Thank you for this nice bed. Thank you for my daddy. Thank you for my brother and sister. Thanksgiving, a very important element of prayer. You can teach your small children to repent, to say, I'm sorry, God. And a little child knows when he's done something naughty that day, and if he forgets, you might just gently remind him that maybe he needs to ask God for forgiveness. Then he can be taught intercession, praying for other people. Lord, bless Daddy. Bless Susie in her schoolwork. Bless my little brother. And I remember when my brother Tom, just a very small boy, I remember the births of the last three children in our family. And Tom was number five. And one time he prayed, Lord, please make Jenny say, yes, Tommy, you can have it. (laughs) Jenny being his sister one year older than he, a few years older than he. And I remember one time when my father was looking around the room to see if anybody was paying any attention to the words that he was reading from the Bible, and he found Tommy playing with a pencil. Tommy being about five years old, well, maybe five or six, he, he was able to read at that point, because my father stopped his Bible reading and he said, Tommy, I want you to put that pencil down, because we were taught to sit still, not to be fiddling with things. We had to sit still. So he said, Tommy, put the pencil down, and Tommy looked up with those beautiful blue eyes and such a look of angelic innocence. And he said, but Daddy, it says Jesus saves on it. The pencil. In other words, it was a Christian pencil, so he thought he should be allowed to play with it at family prayers. Well, he wasn't. Obedience is the proof of love. And we were taught that our parents meant exactly what they said. And they said it once. They never gave countdowns. And I think that's one of the most destructive things that parents do to their children. Teach them, they teach them to delay obedience. My parents taught us that when they spoke, they expected us to obey. And they told us a story about a little boy that impressed the importance of that concept on our young minds. My father told us that this was a true story. The little, a little boy who had been taught to obey his father instantly without any questions or any countdowns was playing on a railroad track. His father looked out and there was the child in the middle of the railroad track and the father could see that there was a train coming. The father, of course, realized that the boy was completely absorbed in what he was doing and he called out to him, Johnny, lie down at once between the tracks. And Johnny obeyed, and the train passed over him, and he wasn't injured. That sobered us. So my father's authority was very clearly understood, and so was my mother's. What they said, they meant. And that has blessed us through all our lives because it's been so much easier for us to realize that God means exactly what he says, and he means it the first time. And he doesn't have to repeat it over and over and over again. He expects us to obey him. Obedience is the proof of love. Obedience is the evidence of our faith. And we had to have faith in our parents. 
fact that they meant what they said has made it easy for us to believe that God means what he says. The fact that disobedience deserved punishment has made it much easier for us to believe that when God punishes us, it's not because he hates us, it's because he loves us. And let me read from Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 7. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. That's Hebrews 12, 5 to 8, actually. The fact that we were disciplined when we were children helped us to understand God's discipline. And you are certainly looking at a woman who has had to be disciplined by not just my father and mother, but other people, the headmistress in the boarding school that I went to. We learned to respect all authority. We certainly respected teachers, policemen, and everybody else. And I thank God now for that rigorous training that prepared us for God's discipline. We understood that when our parents disciplined us, it certainly was not because they hated us. One more verse. My time is almost up for this talk. 1 Thessalonians 5.10 says that God wants us to live in company with him. It says he died for us that we might live in company with him. Isn't it a wonderful thing to believe that the Lord of the universe actually wants us to live in company with him. A Christian home should demonstrate the fact that Christ is the head, that we live under his lordship, and we do what we do being observed by him. And this concept sank very deeply into my mind because we had a little brass plate over the doorbell of the front door and it said, Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. You know, that sobers children to realize that there is a silent listener to every conversation. And anyone who came to ring that doorbell had a pretty clear idea of what kind of a home this was. Christ is the head the unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. And so my parents strove to make sure that the visible signs of their love for God and their obedience to him were evident in the way we behaved, in the way our home was run, in the way we dressed, in our manners, in our speech, in our behavior, in our treatment of one another. A visible sign of an invisible reality, which is the kingdom of God. And a Christian home can be a microcosm of that kingdom. Think what a difference 
it would make even here in Chino Hills. If your homes were all representing the kingdom of God. There is no more powerful message of the Christian beliefs than a Christian home. What we are speaks much more loudly than anything we say or anything we preach. We need churches. We need preachers. We need teaching. We need the Bible. But your non-Christian friends are looking at you, scrutinizing you and saying, what's the difference in his life? What is it that changed that man or that woman? Why do these people reach out to me? What is what what are they on about? What what is